Hey everybody, it's Greg Martin here. Strap on in and put on your big boy pants. It's time to listen to Pop Goes Your World with Derek Myers and Chris McBrien. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 271, Beetlejuice Movie Review. with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now this week we're going to go back 35 years, all the way back to 1988. We're going to review the Tim Burton film Beetlejuice. But before we get to our movie this week, Derek, any pop culture you've been able to take in this past week, my friend? Uh, yeah, uh, only a couple of things. It's been a pretty busy week outside of uh, pop culture for me. Real life getting in the way. Stupid real life. Stupid job wanting me to actually do work to get a paycheck. What's up with that? Uh, yeah, no kidding. Uh, anyway, I had a chance to finally finish watching something I started watching on Netflix. Got to be a month ago. Uh, I just finally had a chance to finish watching it this week. It's called The Lost City. It stars Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum. And it was... It was okay. I mean, it was fine. It was, um, she plays a, an author who writes these like action romance books and Channing Tatum plays a cover model who like Fabio, who just poses on the cover for the photo of the book. And she's basically at a point where she's just like, I'm done with this. And meanwhile, the Channing Tatum character sort of sees himself as the character in the book, even though he's just a buffoon. And then the author actually gets, uh, gets kidnapped because something in one of her recent books could be the the secret clue to finding a real life treasure and uh, and then you know action and adventure ensue it's sort of a light action light comedy little bit romance thrown in uh, it's a fun turn your brain off movie i mean sandra sandra bullock and channing tatum are are pleasant to look at and their chemistry is okay i mean i, I didn't necessarily believe that they were lovers or anything silly like that but uh, it was fine um, and then for the first time in many weeks, I finally had a chance to watch a documentary. For 40 days and 40 nights, he watches documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Documentaries. Actually, you've been able to watch a few documentaries lately because you mentioned the Mr. Dress-Up one. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's but anyway, true. so what did you watch this time? I love that. So, th- again, I... <laughs> Got my access to Netflix back. Uh, this one dropped a couple of weeks ago. It's um, four, four 45 minute episodes, and it's called Big Vape The Rise and Fall of Jewel. That's the like the Jewel electronic cigarette. That's the one they're talking about. It's like J U U L or something. Yeah, J U U L. And um, I mean, I don't really know a lot about the the origin of this product. I know that it was very big for a while. I know that it sort of seems to have 
fallen off of the center of uh, of like mainstream pop culture. But again, I'm not a smoker. I don't know many people that are smokers. I definitely don't know anybody who actually smokes one of these jewels. So for all I know, they could still be the biggest thing in the world. And it's just I'm not their target audience or well, even if I was, I you know, I don't have one. I'm not a part of it. But um, so this was completely 100 percent new to me. I literally knew absolutely nothing about it. It was very educational. And right at the very beginning, like in the first 30 seconds, there's some title cards that show up at the beginning. And it just says like, you know, uh, this, the company of jewel, blah, 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 gives you a little bit of background. And then it says at the peak of their power, they were worth $40 billion. Wow. Today they are worth less than 5% of that. Here's what happened. And I'm like, okay, I'm in. And yeah, it's four 45 minute episodes. The first one is literally just all about the the technology side of it. Like, how did they come up with the, the creation of the actual device? And then the next couple episodes are like, how did they put it to market? How did they sell it? What was the reception like? Um, what sort of marketing strategies did they have to use? Because they had a lot of hurdle hurdles at the beginning. Then like the third episode is all about how, you know, it, it just took off and they made money on top of money on top of money. And then the fourth episode, episode talks about all the problems they started running into because like any other new product, you don't have uh, history to draw back on and say like, well, our product's been in the marketplace for 50 years. So we have a pretty good idea of how it works and what the long-term effects are, especially something related to smoking. You got to think there could be some health problems coming along here. Well, by the time the thing was in the market long enough for them to realize that, a lot of people were in a spot where they were potentially going to be subjected to some of these problems. So no, it was, uh, it was very educational. Um, I, I enjoyed it from the sense that it, it taught me about something I didn't know. A lot of what they talked about in the documentary was, was somewhat disturbing. And especially the last episode is, um, you know, a little bit hard to watch in the sense that just so many people ended up so in, in places where they were so badly off some people just lost a ridiculous amount of money. Some people lost friends and family. Some people lost reputation, but a lot of people lost health, like things to do with their health. There were all, uh, and there were people that, that did lose their life related to this. Um, again, I don't think that's so much a spoiler, but in the context of this, of this docuseries, you, you get to see all of that. So, but, uh, no, it was interesting. Apparently it's based on a book. So, if, if it is something you're interested in, you watch the documentary and you're like, I want to know more about it. I, I, I'm guessing the book is probably a pretty interesting read if this is a topic you you are uh, interested in. So that was it for me. Just the two. The Lost City on Netflix and uh, the docuseries Big Vape also on Netflix. Nice. And obviously you and I obviously had the opportunity to get together this past week. And I came down to your place and we went around uh, the greater Toronto area looking for some of my Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back cards to add to my collection so that was a lot of fun so that was great we don't always get a chance to hang out in person so that was great. I appreciate it yeah that. no it was fun we got to we got to nerd it up i told people what we were doing and they're all like man you guys are a couple of nerds aren't you like, oh yeah yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah yeah we are i'm looking for rare comic books he's looking for rare star wars cards <laughs> and then uh yeah no that was it yeah no it was, it was a lot of fun it was good to see him. but from a pop culture point of view so i want to mention one thing so my youngest son he's 10 years old as you know derek uh he's been going back recently and watching the Power Rangers. So okay. he was really into the show a couple of years ago. And now he's like going back to it. I'm not sure exactly which version of the Power Rangers he's watching. It's not the original one from the 90s. If you remember that one. It's like, it's called like Dino Fury or Ninja Steel or I think it's one of those two. I'm not sure. Anyway, regardless, he's been watching this show recently. 
And then the other day, my wife says to him, oh, which one is your favorite Power Ranger? And he's like, oh, I like the white one. Then he pipes up and he goes, daddy's favorite is the pink Power Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell it's you. It's not wrong. If, if, if looks could kill, Derek, my wife's stare was like two daggers shooting across the room. <laughs> I may or may not be sleeping on the couch for the foreseeable future. <laughs> Watching the Power Rangers, no doubt, I imagine. All right, here we go. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, my family unfortunately just found out that my grandfather is addicted to a drug. Okay. Yeah, he's addicted to Viagra. Although we're all sad, no one's taking it harder than Grandma. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> No one's it wow, that's, the <laughs> that's not where I thought that was going. But I've got a can, so I'm opening this up right now. And I'm a girl drink drunk, so I'm having a pop shop cream soda. Oh, that's a good one. That has Chris's stamp all over it. You mean the Phantom Menace? Oh, I'm not a fan of the prequels. <laughs> okay, okay, fair enough. I used to be a, a somewhat successful podcaster in the world of fantasy baseball. Oh, yes. Dax! Oh, <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Still laughing about grandma. Sorry. <laughs> so anyway, Derek. Calm down. Calm down. Do we need to edit you out? Do you need a moment to take a breath? So my friend, it, this week, it was over to me to select a film uh, celebrating a major milestone anniversary. So I, I went with Tim Burton's 1988 film Beetlejuice, mainly because I had never seen it. And I mentioned this to you. It was just, it was like never on my radar. You know, as a movie that I wanted to see, like both back in the day and, and in the years that have passed since. So now you've seen this movie before. So having oh, watched it again so many times. this past week, what were your thoughts? So it's interesting you mentioned that because I almost didn't have a chance to watch the movie before the show. And I thought to myself, I've seen this movie so many times. This is one of those rare cases where I would actually be fairly confident going in without having watched it in the last week now i don't like to do that right. but i'll admit it i've done that on a couple of shows in the past and i i really don't like it i feel it's sort of i'm cheating myself and i'm cheating you and i'm cheating the listeners like there's you pick up a lot of things watching a movie even if it's the 10th or 20th time you're watching it but as luck would have it two hours before we were set to record i found myself with nothing to do and I thought, you know what? That's more than enough time. I found it on demand. It's 90 minutes. I'm like, perfect. I managed to get through it. And then like 10 minutes after that, I got the note from you saying, we're ready to go. Log in. So I did manage to watch it again just today. And I'm glad I did because I did pick up some new details. Uh, the things the things I liked, I had a chance to really, you know, watch them again and enjoy them. And um, I, I, I found that... In the world of Marvel CGI cinematic universe where everything is all computer graphics and computer generation and and all these things that are done on a green screen, uh, it was uh, it was nice to go back and watch a movie where the special effects were mostly practical deliberately and deliberately done in such a way that they're supposed to look practical. Like this wasn't 
you know, like in the Empire Strikes Back, where they're trying to make the Tauntauns legitimately look real. Like Tim Burton was doing what he was doing deliberately to set a certain style and aesthetic. And it was I found it was a refreshing uh, look back at at that type of, uh, of filmmaking. So, no, I, I was glad I had a chance to go back and watch it. It reminded me of all the reasons I enjoy this movie. I mean, it's not perfect and we'll get to it. But there's a lot to like in this. I feel there's a lot to like in this. Now, I know you've never seen this before, so I'm kind of curious as to what your uh, initial impressions were after you had a chance to sit down and watch it. And did you watch it by yourself or did you watch it with your family? Watch it with myself. And 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 as we mentioned, I'd never seen this movie. So watching it for the first time this week, one thing that kind of jumped out at me, it surprised me a little bit. I was a little bit shocked that this movie is sandwiched between Pee Wee's Big Adventure and like Batman and Edward Scissorhands for Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I thought this movie totally sucked. Wow. Yeah. I did not like it. And Tim Burton has always had this unique ability to create these totally like unbelievable, amazing worlds. This movie felt really sophomoric. It felt cheap. Hmm. It felt like a low budget side project that Tim Burton, Burton did between these big Hollywood movies. It was weird. Um, I, yeah, I didn't enjoy it. Even my wife and she had seen it before. So she watched a bit of it with me and then she just got up and left. She's like, this movie's not very good. <laughs> She's like, I forgot this movie's not very good. Um, so one question I have right off the, the bat before I start to get into the box office and stuff is the title Beetlejuice because okay. the spelling of it is different in the movie. Like they show his name. But it's written out as B-E-T-E-L-G-E-U-S-E. Yeah. And they change it to like Beetlejuice, like Beetle like the bug and Juice like the drink. I'm yep. assuming just for the ease of mainstream audiences so that the title would stick with them. Like it's, Yeah, absolutely. Like, what is Beetlejuice like the, the, the way that it's spelled the other way? Is that... No, it's know. a star. It's a star. It's the the middle star in the belt of the constellation Orion. It's the name of an astronomical body in space. Which has so much to do with a bunch of dead people summoning another dead person to try and scare people out of their house. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Maybe that's why it's so weird. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about the box office because we all like to get into this. So it was mm-hmm. released, released on March the 30th, 1988. It was made on a production budget of $15 million. It took in $73 million at the domestic U.S. box office. So it cracked the top 10 that year. Let's run down the top 10 from 1988, shall we? Number one. Go for it. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was number one, $156 million. Number two was Coming to America. Good Morning Vietnam was in third, $122 million. Big was fourth with $114 million. Crocodile Dundee 2 was fifth. Three Men and a Baby was sixth. Die Hard was seventh. Should have been higher. Moonstruck eighth. Cocktail ninth. Beetlejuice tenth. Just edged out a fish called Wanda. So. Pretty solid list. Yeah, pretty solid list. And it, it, it obviously it did well, you know, in that year. So, I don't know. Um, I also want to, I, I guess, let's just jump right into the cast. I always like breaking down the cast. So, I, I want to start with sure. like Michael Keaton. Okay. Even though he's he's the sort of the title character, but he doesn't appear in it in a whole lot. But um, he he started off in TV. His first gig was actually on Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. He was a panda, <laughs> a costume character, and he made a few appearances on sitcoms in the seventies, like Maude, 
and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And then he landed the co-lead with Jim Belushi on a sitcom called Working Stiffs. They shot nine episodes and it was canceled after four. (laughs) So the other five episodes never aired. They released them on DVD or something like that. But And then he got the role of Billy Blazjowski in Night Shift. And I know you like that movie. So Night Shift is with my hero, Henry Winkler. He was amazing in Night Shift. I remember he was that. quite good. Oh, yeah, I saw that movie in the theater when I was twelve, which is actually kind of weird. If you think, there's a lot of nudity in that movie, <laughs> not to mention the fact that it's about a a prostitution ring in a morgue. But <laughs> it's, the eighties were a different time, Derek. You know, indeed they were. <laughs> Watched a lot of stuff way too young, but you know that's just the way it was. So Michael Keaton became a star after he was in Night Shift, and then there was like. Mr. Mom and Johnny Dangerously and Gung Ho. He was also in this totally underrated movie called The Dream Team. God, oh, I've so seen I've seen it a long time, but I've seen it. It is it quite was good. Good. And then, of course, he got the lead role in Batman in 1989. Probably, I guess, due to him working with Tim Burton here on Beetlejuice. And, you know, needless to say, Derek, you you know this. A lot of Batman fans hated the idea of him playing Bruce Wayne. In a lot of ways, if you think about it, it killed his career too. Like it wasn't until, or was it Birdman that the Academy decided, you know, he was the flavor of the month, you know, and there to give career accolades to. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know, in this movie, like he's over the top. Probably would have been difficult for any other actor to pull this off, except maybe like someone like Jim Carrey. Like, like I kept thinking that, but you know, as I watched the movie, I also thought it was kind of pointless. Like, he's this huge over-the-top character, but he's hardly in the movie at all. And, it, and he isn't even all that consequential, I didn't think. I mean, you know, like, they named the movie after him, but it, I mean, it just, it, it seemed a bit weird. So, anyway, that's my big rant on Michael Keaton. Like, what did you think of him? Just in general, like, you like Michael Keaton, and what do you think of him in this? I do. I like him a lot. Uh, I thought he was really good in this. I like that he um, was not in the movie that much, despite the movie being named for him. I think uh, I read the trivia. He's in it something like 15 minutes out of the 90 minutes of the movie. But I think to your point, the the character that that's created here is so over the top and eccentric and loud and annoying that you you sort of need him in small doses. Like I think if he was in it for 45 minutes you would get so sick of him so quickly. But the fact that when they use him, especially before the sort of big climax scene, he's only on screen for a couple minutes at a time. And he's, he, in my opinion, when, you know, those first few times when he's on screen, he just steals the scene. And from what I read, the overwhelming majority of what he did was, was improv. Like he was sort of given some very broad direction and then just like said, go. And even some, like one of my absolute favorite lines is, um, when uh, the two ghosts, Alec Baldwin and uh, Gina Davis, I can't remember the names of their characters, they, they're they in the model and they're like first meeting them after they've said the Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice three times. And then um, he's trying to get them to come back. He's like, come on, let's go get a meal. And then they go home, home, home. And they leave and he's yelling at them and he's like, come on, what is it? And then he kicks over the tree and he's like, nice effing model. And he grabs his crotch and it makes a honking noise. Yeah. Like that is in my mind, that's one of my all time favorites. I love it. I laugh every time I watch it. And from what I read, that was completely improv 
and and he he literally turned and he was saying those lines to the prop person and it just so happened that you know when they kept it in the movie it, it seemed like he was saying it to these characters and so i just i love that he's got that comedic background and uh that he was able to do that and then you you can see him in and stuff years later where you, you see like he can also he has that range. He can be a very serious, dramatic actor. So not that we necessarily had a lot of examples of that at that time. But uh, but you could see the promise. No, it was I, I, I liked him a lot. I thought he was really good at this. It's funny you mentioned that one scene because when he did and he said that line and he dropped the F-bomb and everything like and then grabbed his crotch. It, to me, what jumped out at me was like that one tiny scene made this whole thing inappropriate for kids. Otherwise, like, you know, kids might actually like this movie, but I don't know. Well, I don't know. What do you mean by inappropriate? Because it's a bad word? Bad word and grabbing his crotch and stuff. I don't know. Um, You have two boys. Trust me. They know about grabbing their crotch. So I want to talk about (laughs) Alec Baldwin. Okay. Wow. Does he ever look young here? I mean, No kidding. I know it's 35 years ago, but he looks like a different person. He's so young and thin, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if you, if you saw in the news, he's back in hot water for that, um, that shooting yeah. on the set of the movie Rust. So apparently oh. prosecutors are looking to charge him with involuntary manslaughter for accidentally shooting another actor on the set with a prop gun that was like loaded with live ammunition instead of things. I don't know a lot of the details of this case, but uh, it's not his fault that the gun was loaded. I, mean, I, I, I guess the issue is he discharged it in a way that maybe violated safety procedures or something, but I don't know. Don't know enough about it. Not interested. Don't even want to get into it. But anyway, let's just for his acting career. So like Michael Keaton, Baldwin got actually got started in TV. And then all of a sudden 1988 comes along and he shows up in five films. He was in, she's having a baby with uh, Kevin Bacon, Elizabeth McGovern, Beetlejuice, married to the mob, working girl and talk radio. It was really the hunt for Red October in 1990 that made him a big star. Yeah. And then he's worked steadily ever since, right up until 2021 when he started shooting his co-stars, apparently. Um, And he was a guest host on Saturday Night Live right from his early days as a a movie star. And I remember they used to do this sketch on SNL called the Five Timers Club. Yep. Actors that had hosted SNL five times, like Tom Hanks and... Steve Martin, Danny DeVito, and guys like that. They were members of the Five Timers Club. Alec Baldwin not only joined the club, he's now hosted the show a record 17 times. <laughs> That's pretty impressive if you think about it. And he's he's pretty good. I mean, there was the whole season there when he was playing President Trump. Like, yeah. he won an Emmy for it. He's, he's, uh, he's really come into his own. Like, I was not a big fan of him years ago, I'll be honest. But um, I, I, I've definitely warmed up to him more in the last you know, a little while and going back to rewatch 30, 30 rock, which I never watched when it was on TV, but I uh, recently binged the whole series. He's fantastic in that show. He's just so, so good. And, um, but yeah, I didn't really love him in this. I didn't think he was outstanding. I didn't think he did anything that another performer couldn't have done. And from what I was reading on online, apparently this is one of the, one of his own movies that he dislikes the most. He didn't, didn't feel that he did a very good job as opposed to Michael Keaton, who every time they ask him, what's a favorite movie you've ever done? This is his number one answer. doesn't even hesitate. So it's kind of funny that you have those flip sides between the two male leads. I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I thought the same thing. I thought in this movie, he was just okay. You know, it, just like you said, it could have easily been played by another actor. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking of Barry Boswick 
from the Rocky Horror Picture Show when I was watching him play this role. But anyway, Gina Davis, I want to mention her. She's done a lot of stuff over the years. Probably best known to a lot of people for like Thelma and Louise, League of the Oh, Run, yeah. Yeah, and for sure. She won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for The Accidental Tourist. But for me, I will always remember her from Family Ties. Alex had a major crush on her. She was this um, this nanny that Stephen Keaton hired. Oh, yeah. I totally I'm forgot pretty, about that. I think, I'm pretty sure it was when Meredith Baxter Burney was like holding out for more money. So she wasn't around. So they hired this nanny. And Gina Davis will always hold a special place in my heart because she was in Tootsie, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I mentioned that before. And in this movie, again, like I liked her. She's very charismatic. She has a lot of screen presence, but I thought she was just okay. I mean, she was better than Alec Baldwin, but you know, it was just it was just okay for me. I like her in just about anything she does. But uh, you know, yeah, I I sort of felt the same this time through that I you know the the two performers that play the the ghosts, the good ghosts, that I just felt they were both sort of just okay. I felt that um, Michael Keaton in my mind, stole the movie. I, I'm i not a big fan of Winona Ryder most of the time, but re-watching it this time around, I, I realized, like, she's really good in this. And Catherine O'Hara, who, again, doesn't have a lot of screen time, really good. Like, the, the basically, the family that moves into the house, like, they're all, they do a really good job. I found that I, I enjoyed their performances more, maybe just because those characters were a little more neurotic and the performers had more to work with, whereas the the main two ghosts were just sort of, you're good, clean, and wholesome people. You know, you're you're positive about everything. And it's like, that's boring. Like that's boring to watch. And I can only imagine it's boring to, as a performer to actually perform those roles, but. Well, let's talk, but about, I guess, but, let's talk about that yeah, family so. a little bit more. I think that's interesting. You bring that up because for Renona Ryder, this was her first big movie. I mean, she was in Lucas with Corey Haim and Carrie Green and Charlie mm-hmm. Sheen. Wasn't that too? Charlie Sheen? Yeah. Yeah. And she went on to do Heather's and Edward Scissorhands. And then in 2001, for anybody that's you know younger, doesn't remember. She was arrested in Beverly Hills for shoplifting. Yeah. And it effectively killed her career. She appeared in a few things here and there, but it wasn't really until Stranger Things that she had that bona fide comeback. In this movie, interestingly, I know you, you said you liked her. I didn't think she was all that great. I really thought that this goth teen girl could have been even almost even more memorable than Beetlejuice. But Winona Ryder was just kind of sleepwalking through what I felt. Like, uh, and, well, and, the, and then at the beginning, I just one thing I just want to mention. When, when you see her at the beginning and she's all disheveled and she's got the pale face and the black around her eyes, I thought she looked like Mia Wallace in Pulp Fiction after she OD'd on heroin. That's what I... <laughs> I just like, oh my God, she looks like Uma Thurman there. But, uh, but you liked her a little bit better than I did in this. I, well, and I think part of it was, again, when I'm watching these movies for, for the podcast, I tend to do a little bit of homework uh, beforehand so that I, I, I keep my eye out for certain scenes. And one of the things that I had read that I was reading was um, someone was talking about, uh, it, it, you know, the question posed to, to the Internet was, is Winona Ryder's character supposed to be suffering from depression? In this movie. Now, obviously, it's a comedy and it came out in the 80s and that wasn't the kind of thing that was really talked about in certain circles. But when I watched it with that sort of perspective of how, you know, is this character supposed to be depressed? And because even at one point, like she's writing what's effectively a suicide note. Now, again, I think the whole idea is 
the way I always interpreted before this was it's a young person crying out for attention. How do I get attention from parents who are this eccentric, Uh, especially with the father who's remarried this woman who's this, you know, this artist and just, you know, all the rest of that. But when I started watching it this time around and sort of thinking like, is this character legit depressed? And, and I'm starting to think, yeah, you know, she probably could be, she probably is to some extent. And so when I sort of watched it from that that point of view, I, I sort of just got a little twist on on what I was expecting. And, and I feel that when I watched it through that lens, I, I actually enjoyed it a lot more just thinking, oh, well, if that was the direction they gave her for this character, I think that uh, I think that it worked for me anyway. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, that whole goth thing is kind of depression is like kind of part of it. Like you don't fit in with everybody else and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, I don't know. I, just, I felt like I, don't know, I felt I wanted more from her character. I wonder more, but you, yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's a comedy. It's 90 minutes. Yeah. There's yeah. like seven or eight main characters. You're not really going to get a lot from anyone. Like you'll get uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis uh, are the two, like they probably combined have the most screen time over anyone. Cause, and, sure. uh, and then Michael Keaton obviously is the, the big star, but like we said, he's, he's sort of used in a more sparing way until the end. Um, so yeah. And, and to your point, the character that Winona Ryder's playing was, uh, it, you know, it was her first sort of big blockbuster movie. I heard that Alyssa Milano was the other person that sort of made the short list. And it was just at the last minute they ended up picking Winona Ryder. So think of that sort of what if moment. Like what if they had gone with uh, with Alyssa Milano instead? How might this have been different? How might both of their careers changed? Who knows? Good point. So the the other uh, people that move in there, the parents, Catherine O'Hara, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I always thought she was super underrated. Like yes. You know, it, and that's kind of hard to, to believe if you consider the fact that she was in one of the highest grossing comedies of all time with Home Alone. And she was the mom in Schitt's Creek, you know, one mm-hmm. of the most critically acclaimed TV shows ever, you know. Yeah. It was but, 45 years for her overnight success. Yeah, I loved her on SETV. I mean, she had this ability to create all these characters like... Um, oh, I mean, the whole cast was masters of doing that, but she was right up there with all of them. Like Lola Heatherton, you know, I want to bear your children, <laughs> all that. Uh, I always thought that uh, a lot of Lola Heatherton showed up in Moira Rose in Schitt's Creek. Mostly mm-hmm. the voice. I don't know. Um, it was, I felt like it was a bit of a toned down version of Lola that she used there. But anyway, in this movie, like the rest of the cast, I felt like she was just okay. Like there was nothing like that stood out to me, you know, in, in, in her in this movie. But I like her generally. But I, I don't know she was just okay in this. And then Jeffrey Jones, I hate this guy. Yeah, he's not my favorite. And knowing what happens in real life, That's uh, why you I just have him. every every other reason to hate him yeah. over and above that. Like I mean, he usually just plays a smarmy douchebag anyway. And yeah. it's like, hey, turns out he wasn't acting. Yeah, I mean, he was in Easy Money with Rodney Dangerfield. And Howard the Duck, and obviously Ed Rooney, in Ferris, Ferris Bueller's Day, Day Off. He was in uh, he was in Amadeus. That, oh yes, he was. That's right. But obviously, most notably, he was arrested in two thousand and three for possession of child pornography. So how anybody hired this guy after that for anything is beyond me. He he was in Deadwood. After that, I never watched it. Never will. I don't know. I don't like the guy. I want to give a shout out to Sylvia Sidney. So she was like the um, 
Oh, what was she? She was like the, the she was smoking the cigarette and she was like, oh, they're they're uh, they're agent. They're uh, yeah. What did they call her? They're I think agent was what they used. Yeah. Something like that. So Caseworker or something. She was yeah. the original Mama Carlson from the pilot episode of WKRP. Oh, yeah. Nice. After the pilot, she was replaced by Carol Bruce, who was a way better Mama Carlson, by the way. And then when they did the flashback episode at the end of season one, they went back and reshot a scene from the pilot where, where she comes into the station and they did it with, with Carol Bruce, but she was on the pilot episode of one of my favorite TV shows of all time. So she gets a shout out for me. That's for sure. There you go. I want to talk about a couple scenes from the movie. Okay. Okay. The waiting room scene, which I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, when the, the, the dead couple, like they, they draw a chalk, like a, like a door out of chalk on the wall and they walk through it and they go into this waiting room and there's all these weird characters in there, like the guy with the shrunken head. He really stands out. Yep. There's a guy there that looks exactly like Paul Bearer from the WWF. Now, Derek. Sure. I, know I have no idea who yeah, that is. You're not a big wrestling fan. But there was this wrestler called The Undertaker. And his manager was Paul Bearer. And he looked exactly like this guy. I just couldn't believe it. Like he wearing a suit and he had the, sort of this white makeup with the, the black around his eyes. So anyway, I, I thought that scene was kind of interesting. And then the big scene, I guess, is when Beetlejuice arrives. It's supposed to be this huge, over-the-top entrance, you know. But And they, they play it up by having Michael Keaton say, it's showtime, which I think was the big marketing clip. Yeah, I remember that from the trailer. Yeah. But Michael Keaton just turns out to be this lecherous pervert. He kisses Gina Davis on the mouth. He looks up her skirt with a stick and he starts fondling her legs. Pretty cringeworthy stuff. You know? Yeah, I mean, definitely by today's standard. I, and, and, but as we've said before, some of these movies in the 80s, what was considered funny and humorous at the time would certainly not stand up to any scrutiny today. And, I, you know, you can't excuse the behavior, but different time i you know every time i watched that when i was you know even today there was parts of it that i was laughing at and parts of it like you said where i'm like yeah it's probably a little inappropriate um, and, Al- and alec baldwin doesn't even do anything to defend her i mean if, it, if, if this movie had happened in today's age he probably would have shot him with a prop gun i guess jeez <laughs> but i mean he didn't even do anything at all to defend the honor of his of his wife it's so okay so the scene Outside the house, all the scenes that took place when they left the house with the sandworms and all that stuff, the mm-hmm. whole look and feel of this weird world that was going on outside the house, it came off as cheap and cheesy looking to me. Was it just yep. me? No, I, I read a little bit about that, that uh, part of the, the practical effects were done in a way to sort of make them look cheap and, and sort of be be like a, almost an homage or a callback to like, cheap B movies from the fifties and Mm sixties. But I did read that they had a limited special effects budget and that was where they were trying to spend the money. And they just, Mm -hmm. they basically couldn't, they couldn't do what they wanted with the budget they had. And it's like, okay, we're out of money. What do you want to do? And they're like, I guess we're going to use it. And it's unfortunate. You know how George Lucas went back and touched up star Wars and everyone got angry. I think if Tim Burton had some money and some time and some inclination and decided to go back to touch up Beetlejuice and want to fix up that part of it, I don't think anyone would complain. Well, one thing that Tim Burton is famous for is using claymation in his movies. And yeah, or stock motion animation for sure, yeah. Or whatever. Like, for here, though, in this movie, it just doesn't work. I don't know. 
like in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, Large Marge was amazing. It's scary, too. It was such a great thing. But the, here, like the sandworms, they just look dumb. I, I felt like the claymation sucked in this movie. And maybe that was part of why I didn't like it, because Tim Burton uses a lot of that. And in this movie, I don't know. I just I felt like it didn't really work. But uh, well, and to me, it's more his is like his artistic style. And it's if you watch a lot of his movies, they sort of have a lot of this this same uh, you know, he, he, well, again, I'll use the word style again. I hate to keep using it, but like, it's very distinct where if, if you've never seen it before and someone says, Hey, guess who directed this? And you watch it for 30 seconds. You're going to go, Oh, well, that's got to have Tim Burton done it somewhere. Like, look, you can tell just by how the, the models looked and the stock motion animation and just the, the color palettes. And there's, there's just so much of his signature is in this. And I think that when this came out, he was still working on that. You know, like any artist, you're, you're, style and your um you know the way you compose your art is going to change over time and and you're going to refine it as you have more opportunities to do it and i think that this is one of those early opportunities where he had just come off of peewee's big adventure which ended up being a surprise hit he was given a bigger budget and a lot more freedom than he had ever had before so he was able to try things and to your point maybe they don't all work or maybe they don't all work for all people but it it definitely led to a lot of what you see here being a little more refined and and then doing a number of other projects in the years to come. Um, and, and, you know, and again, so if, if Tim Burton's style isn't your thing, you're not going to like this. You're just straight up not. There's a lot of Tim Burton in this. Uh, and I'm like physically on the screen that the, the just the way that he likes to compose these weird and bizarre things. If you dig it, I, I think you're going to appreciate that this is, you know, everything's got to start somewhere. Like that's what I'm looking at it going, Oh yeah, I can. Cause I know some of his later works and I'm watching this one again today and saying, Oh yeah, that's reminiscent of this other thing that is, you know, done a little bit differently and possibly even a little bit better in something 10 years later. Well, you mentioned the, the special effects. Let's just go back to that for a quick second because sure. you, know, you know me, I, I do like practical special effects uh, over CGI crap and the waiting room weirdos you know they were that, yeah that was really good with, spe- yeah. with like traditional special effects which i thought was great and also all the scenes where gina davis and alec baldwin were trying to scare the couple when they first moved in all practical special effects they you yeah could, you could see they were using like a headless dummy and then they were using green screens they used a lot of green screens for the exterior shots i thought too like yeah was pretty yeah. noticeable but um i also want to mention the banana boat song because it's featured prominently in this movie right yep. from the beginning. Yeah, it's and, in the opening credits. Yeah, and then the scene at the dinner table when they all start singing it, you know, uh, it's supposed to be played for laughs, I, I think. I don't know. It just didn't work for me. It just, I don't know. There's something off about that whole scene. And I feel like that should be watching it for the first time. That was probably like a prominent scene in the film or like a well-known scene in the film. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, for sure. When you ask people about Beetlejuice, that's usually the scene that they talk about. And I, that's that's what it was saying in a lot of the the, the stuff I was reading where that that scene, even Tim Burton felt, ah, I don't know if this is going to work because it maybe isn't as ha ha laugh out loud funny. But uh, once once they did some test screenings and it started to show this is the scene that everybody walked away talking about. So he's like, okay, what do I know? Let's, let's keep it in there. Let's get this done. And, well, and again, I, I, I think I'm like you, I wasn't, I didn't love it the first time I saw it, but when I was watching the movie again today, I was looking forward to seeing that scene again. 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, now if you think of the, the song itself, it's this traditional Jamaican song, which was made famous in, um, in 1955 by Harry Belafonte. He recorded it for the Colgate Comedy Hour on NBC. And I remember this song had a bit of a resurgence in the late 80s and early 90s. So I'm assuming it was due to this movie. I would imagine so. Yeah. And I mean, even now you hear it at sport. I hear it at the Leafs game all the time, they, you know, and uh, they, they, they play it out. It's it's uh, yeah, it's just one of those one of those songs that you hear in stadiums a lot. At least I do where I go. Just to go back for a second to that couple that moves in. You mentioned that you felt they were more interesting than the, the, the original couple that dies. I actually, in some ways, felt bad for these people, you know, except for Jeffrey Jones that guy mm -hmm. but the idea that this couple moves into this house like what did they do wrong <laughs> like nothing they just moved in like they should have been the real protagonists of the film <laughs> you know, like they, mm -hmm. they were the ones that were put upon so I, I i thought of that too and i thought so it kind of flipped it on its head and another one of the last things i want to mention is is the end of the film so it's it seemed like winona Ryder became like the daughter of the ghosts or something. I, I, I'll be honest. I kind of zoned out right near the end. So I might've missed what's going on, but she wasn't all goth. Like her makeup was kind of normal. Mm -hmm. She didn't have the black around the eyes and stuff. I was like, Oh, she looks normal there. And then she levitates near the stairway and sings a song. I just didn't get it. Like what the, what the hell was I missing? I just, at that point I'm like, this movie is really, really, really stupid stupid i i i don't know i don't know what i expected but i guess it was a hell of a lot more than this crap fest i mean it's tim friggin burden i mean come on give me something here but i don't know i just i just didn't get it well i i think you just sort of hit the nail on the head there you weren't paying attention because you know as you've as we've done in other shows you're asking me what did this mean and i tell you 20 minutes earlier there, there was a whole bunch of dialogue that explained all of that and same thing here. They they had a whole bunch of dialogue that explained all this. So if you weren't paying attention, I can <laughs> I get why you, zoned out. you know, yeah, it's like, maybe, yeah. hey, uh, why did that end that way? I didn't like it. Well, yeah, because you stopped watching it 20 minutes ago, dude. <laughs> maybe, yeah. um, so I, I think it's, it's important that we take a look at this, especially you. Where do you rank this with Tim Burton's other films? Because I'll give you mine. I think Edward Scissorhands is his best film. And I think number two would be Pee-wee's Big Adventure and number three would probably be Batman. That's wow. how I'd rank his movies. But, but, but like, what do you think and where does this one rank with them? Um, it would definitely make my top three. Um, I, I, you know, I think I would definitely include Batman on that list. Um, honestly, I, I'm, you know, a lot of his his stuff, like he's he's got a lot of that sort of gothic horror sort of stuff, like not hardcore horror, but more just the leaning in that direction. I was never really I'm not really a big fan of that. And um, so I can appreciate it. And I like the style. But like even Nightmare Before Christmas, like I don't really care for that at all. But as a piece of art and watching the way that the animation came together, it's it's amazing to look at. Um, yeah, I would, this is probably like my number two. For Tim Burton, so, probably be Batman and then so be Batman number one, and then this, yeah. and then now again, I'm sort of biased for Batman just because I'm of such course. a big Batman fan. Of course, and Batman was good, but I I mm -hmm. really liked Edward Scissorhands a lot. Not like, oh, not a big fan of Edward Scissorhands. I like Big Fish. That's one of his later movies. I really enjoyed that one. No, I I, I don't know. I never saw that one, so I guess I can't really comment. But well, um, it came out after 1989, so I, I'm not really surprised. No, 
Um, do you want to rank this one out of 10? Probably give it a seven or seven and a half. I think I may give it a four. You know, it's it's not complete. It's not a complete turkey, but it, it was certainly, it was underwhelming for me and it wasn't what I expected. And like I said to you at the beginning, it kind of flew under the radar for me. And it's funny right. because a lot of these movies that kind of flew under the radar for me and like never really interested me. Now that I've gone back and watched them, I'm like, maybe there was a reason why that was. I don't know. Yeah. But uh, it's uh, it's interesting that you one. I just want to circle back something you yeah. said where you said that you didn't feel this was family friendly or kid friendly. It's funny because uh, when I was watching this earlier tonight, and my wife came in the room and she said, "Oh, yeah, I noticed this was on YTV. Is that where you're watching it?" And I said, "No, no, I got it uh, on one of my streamers." And then I turned and I said, "It's on YTV." She's like, "Yeah, but it's got commercials." And I'm like, "Again, obviously they feel that it's." you know, family friendly enough to show on the, oh, the, I, th- the I think the, the whole movie is family friendly, except for that yeah. one scene. Yeah. They that probably just one the scene swear. just like kind of throws it all, you know, uh, to the wind yeah. that way. So, yeah. All right. So, okay. What do you say now? We have some fun with caveman. All right. So, well, since this was my movie that I picked or like nominated for the show, cause I'd never seen it. Uh, mm-hmm. Trivia is over to you. So what do you got for us? My friend, I'm okay. Sit back well, and relax. Yeah, we're gonna. I'm, I'm gonna break it down into a couple sort of smaller sections, a okay. little bit less traditional uh, at first. So um, this was directed by Tim Burton, and uh, the music was composed by Danny Elfman, which we never really talked about, but uh, it was. And it turns out Tim Burton and Danny Elfman have worked together a lot, like a lot, like a ridiculous amount, almost twenty movies together. These two guys, like, and we've talked about this before when. Uh, when directors like to work with the same performers, or in this case, this director likes to work with a particular music composer, and and they almost have like a shared symbiotic style where you can almost not separate one for the other. So I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and ask you uh, to identify some films. And the common out, the common thread, the commonality in all of this is Tim Burton either directed or produced it, and Danny Elfman composed the music. Okay. So it's two big hints right out of the gate. So. First, now I will say this is probably going to be tough trivia for you because Tim Burton's majority of his work happened after 1990. So mm-hmm. I'm not trying to deliberately make you look dumb, but, uh, you know, this, <laughs> you, this, might, you, might you may get a lot of them wrong simply because they came out after your sweet spot. But uh, hopefully a lot of our listeners, especially if they're Tim Burton fans, can play along and get the answers. Okay. So uh, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman have done two pairs of sequels. Can you name the two the two movies like the two franchises where they've done two sequels together? And well, what are the two movies? I like? would think Batman. Yes. Okay. And that was 1989, and its sequel was uh, Batman Returns. It was in 1992. Okay, so that's the first set. There's another two movies they did together, where it was a part one and a part two. I'm gonna just go ahead and say it's Pee Wee's Big Adventure and Big Top Pee Wee. Nope. Oh. Uh, believe it or not, Tim Burton had nothing to do with Big Top Pee Wee. Didn't have a producer oh, credit, director credit, right. writing credit, nothing. Right. Not involved at all. Hmm. Uh, I, okay, so now I'll, I will give you the description okay. of the first movie in this sequel. So a 19-year-old girl returns to the magical world from her childhood adventure where she reunites with her old friends and learns of her true destiny. Is it, didn't he do Alice in Wonderland? 
Yep, Alice in Wonderland, 2010. Oh, and I didn't even know. Did you know what the sequel, sequel was called? Didn't even know it was called Alice Through the Looking Glass, 2016. So those were the two they did together that were sequels: Batman, Batman Returns, and Alice in Wonderland, Alice Through the Looking Glass. Was Alice uh, in Wonderland? Was Johnny Depp in that? Yes, yeah. and let me tell you, when, when I was doing that, the search. Yeah. When I was working on this trivia, I uh, I almost did the Tim Burton, Danny Elfman, Johnny Depp. But since Johnny Depp's not in Beetlejuice, it just felt like a step too far. So, OK, uh, the t- these two guys uh, uh, have also done four movies together that are remakes or reimaginings of previous intellectual property. Can you name mm. any of the four? And if you can't, I'll give you the I'll give you I the can, synopsis of them. I can name one of them for sure. I think it was a. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? No. Oh. oh, yes. You know what? Sorry, I missed that one. Yeah, because that was... Um... <laughs> yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. I totally forgot. I remember cause... my... Uh, yeah, my wife went to see Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, too. She was, she was really into Johnny Tap. She said, oh, that movie was so good. What else would they have done that was a... Really... So they did oh, five oh, together. Oh, actually, I remember. In, back when I was in, in Port Elgin, I, we went to see the one movie, Sleepy Hollow. Uh, he they did do Sleepy Hollow. Was was that a cartoon? Did they no, do it? Was there no a... Sleepy Hollow was with like Johnny Depp and uh, oh. no no no. But I mean, so I'm asking you the ones they have, that they did that were like a, a remake or reimagining of a well, previous. Well, yeah, movie. Sleepy Hollow was a was a was a cartoon back when I was a kid because I remember it used to scare me. That headless horseman scared the daylights out of me. Nice. All right, you get any of the other ones? Mm, didn't they do Dumbo or something like that? They did in 2019. They did a remake of Dumbo oh live action based I, off the Disney, Disney cartoon. I don't think I can think of anything else that Tim Burton has done. Did you mention the other week that he did when I, I was talking to him? You mentioned Planet of the Apes. Yep, that's another one. 2001 oh, Planet of the Apes, yeah. a reimagining of the 1968 film. Yeah, yep. you had said he did these planet. We, I think it was when we were talking about uh, Andy Serkis. Yes, from the movie. Although that that's did. not that's Andy Serkis was not affiliated with the Tim Burton version of the Planet of the Apes. There's been three sort of reimaginings of the Planet of the Apes. So I'm confusing all right. them all because there've been so many. You are, but you got okay. the right answer. You oh, sort of okay. walked into it sideways, but nice. you got it. Nice. All right. All right. All right. So there, I got two others on my list. I'm going to just read you the descriptions. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I don't think you're getting either one, but we'll try. So the the original. This is a remake of a short film from 1984. The remake it was a full-length feature, came out in 2012, and this is the description. When a boy's beloved dog passes away suddenly, he attempts to bring the animal back to life through a powerful science experiment. Well, actually, now that I think about this, didn't Tim Burton remake his own movie, Frankenweenie? Yes, yes, he did. Look at me. Look at, look at that, you're crushing it. Oh, my God. Okay. Nice. Uh, the next one, this one... Uh, the remake was came out in 2012 okay. and it's based on a TV series from the sixties. And this is the description. Uh, an imprisoned vampire is set free and returns to his ancestral home where his dysfunctional descendants are in need of his protection. I don't know. I don't know. It was based on the TV series, dark shadows. Oh, he made a dark shadows. Who knew? Yeah, okay. I didn't know about that. I, I never watched the TV series, and I had no desire to watch the movie. The so. TV series was a bit before my time, even though I yeah, nineteen sixty six to nineteen seventy one. Yeah, yeah. 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 so I thought okay. And that movie um, was like I never heard of it. So four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so I've got eight 
more films on the list that they've done together. How many more can you name? And any of the ones you can't get, I'll give you the tr- I'll give you the synopsis. I give me you've the already synopsis. mentioned. Just give you've me the already synopsis mentioned two of them. Okay, I'm going to start with the two that you've already mentioned. This uh, the solitary life of an artificial man who was incompletely constructed and has unusual oh, hands. That's, oh, that, that, that's that's speaking. Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, Edward Scissorhands, 1990. Yeah, okay. All right, uh, this other one. When an eccentric man-child gets his beloved bike stolen in broad daylight, he sets out across the U.S. on an adventure of his life. Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, yeah. We just talked about that yeah, one. Yeah, we recorded that We one. just reviewed that, too. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so then there's uh, there's six more here. Honestly, I honestly don't think you're going to – you might get one or two of them, right. but I, I'd be shocked if you – We'll see. That. All right, 2003. A frustrated son tries to determine the facts, the fact from fiction in his dying father's life. I have no idea. <laughs> it's star Hugh McGregor, McGregor is called Big Fish. Okay. I, and it, I, def, I definitely think it's one of uh, Burton's I've best I've heard films. of it. Oh, you just mentioned it, I think, tonight yeah, on the show. It's really good, yeah. No, I don't really All right. Uh, the next one's from 2005. When okay. a shy groom practices his wedding vows in the inadvertent presence of a deceased young woman, she rises from the grave, assuming he has married her. He did like, hey, so he, uh, mm, he did this stop motion movie. Yep. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Then he did another one. And I feel like he it was did. Johnny Depp was like, like kind of. Yep. Guy. Did the voice. But God, for the life of me, I can't think of the title of the film. But it was it, like, was, it was it was like that, like the Nightmare Before yep. Christmas, right? I yep. don't remember the title of the film. It was called it. Corpse Bride. Corpse Bride, yes. Okay, yep. yes, I have heard of that before. Yeah. And I'm going to give I've you Nightmare Before it. Christmas because you just said it five times. Uh, he, Tim Burton did not direct it, contrary to popular belief. He produced it, but oh, okay. Danny Elfman did all the music. Gotcha. All right. Uh, this one's from 2014, and I want to say it might have even been nominated for some below-the-line Oscars, if I remember correctly, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, it's a drama about the awakening of painter Margaret Keene, her phenomenal success in the 1950s, and the subsequent legal difficulties she had with her husband, who claimed credit for her works in the 1960s. You got me on that one. I don't know. Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard it's quite good. It's called Big Eyes. Because all the all the people in it have like gigantic eyes, They're like all the paintings. So it's like, it's like uh, anime where they have the big. They eyes. sort of look like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, okay, they got two more on the list. I'm going to give right. you the really hard one first, and then I'm going to try and end you with the one that you might actually get that I think is a little easier. Sure. Uh, this was another animated one. This one's from 2009. Okay, uh, I actually saw this at the Toronto Film Festival completely by accident, just because I needed to fill a slot. And this is right in your favorite post-apocalyptic genre, so I know you're going to know it. A rag doll that awakens in a post-apocalyptic future holds the key to humanity's salvation. <laughs> no idea. No, no. Uh, you, really? You don't own this on Blu-ray? No. <laughs> the title of the movie is Nine. It's the number nine, and nine. The, the doll that awakens has the number nine stitched on them. That's why the movie's called. I've never heard of it. So. Yeah, it's okay. it was sort of a low-key movie, but... Uh, Anyway, it's got a little bit of a fan following. Right. Okay, last one. This was a really big major movie in the 90s from 1996. Huge cast. Earth is invaded by aliens with unbeatable weapons and a... Uh, sorry, let me start again. Earth is invaded by aliens with unbeatable weapons and a cruel sense of humor. I, a lot of the performers play multiple roles in this I movie. I never saw it, but I remember... Was it like Mars Attacks? 
Yes, yeah. yes, it was. Yeah. Mars Attacks. Was it like Jack Nicholson in that? Jack Nicholson yeah. played two characters in this one. I remember yeah. that. He it was. was in, so I have not dumb. seen the movie, but I'm really familiar of it. So yeah, it looks spectacular, but oh my god, that movie was terrible. I, it was a it was a big renter at Blockbuster, and people were so jazzed about it. And then they came back and went, "This movie kind of sucked." Yeah. I'm like, "Not kind of. It totally sucked." Kind of like okay. me, me with Beetlejuice. You know, come back. And, yeah, sucks. well, you know. maybe not. Anyway, you did pretty good. Um, you know, again, yeah. I knew there was a lot of these you weren't going to know because of uh, they they came out in the the '90s and the 2000s. But you, you, all in all, you did pretty good. You, and you actually corrected me on a couple of those remakes. So hey, good job. Go. That. Yeah. Awesome. I, th I think Tim Burton is a very talented human being. Like he's very artistic. He's very he's a visionary. He has yeah. a definite style. Oh you no know, question. Like, like there's very few directors in the world that you can watch a film and be like that's this guy or that's this girl that uh, agree i absolutely agree tim burton has that and and that that is a very unique quality so for that for all those reasons like i i know his work but i haven't mm -hmm. seen them all but uh yeah no yeah. i'm like a lot of those ones on my list i hadn't seen in large part the ones i haven't seen uh, is largely because i just don't really have any desire to see them i've right. read the synopsis and went that's not my jam but to your point if i turn if i was flicking channels and it was on i would know in 10 seconds that it was a yeah. Tim Burton just by just by the way it looked or and often by the way it sounds because the Danny Elfman scores are usually so pronounced you're like sure. oh my god this has got to be Tim Burton because this is definitely Danny Elfman I feel like he peaked though with Edward Scissorhands like that just was the culmination of his style his talent Elfman's score um Johnny Depp's performance Winona Ryder's performance it was just it was all there and it was just magical like it was mm -hmm. just so unique and weird and like even the the the, the neighborhood and there was all the pastel homes and all it, it all just peaked in that movie for me for all that stuff but that was good this one beetlejuice ah, not so much but um what do you say next time we come back and we just do a topic is that good we're gonna take next week i love off. it is that right yeah, I'm taking a little vacation. Uh, well-deserved vacation. Going? Where are you going to go? We are taking a little short cruise in through the Bahamas. So I'll tell you all about it when we get back. And um, yeah, so no show next week, but I'll come back uh, fully refreshed, fully recharged with uh, some spectacular topic that we will figure out at the last second people may not realize we're not as we don't plan these out as well as you might think sometimes we have a long list of here are 10 topics we want to do but most of the time it's two or three days before going crap we saw them picked yeah. or the night before we're like hey just we got to do a top 10 or top five of this and we'll just do yeah it. it's all good yeah. But honestly, Chris, the ones where we're flying by the seat of our pants, mm -hmm. I tend to have more fun. And I yeah. find those episodes tend to, when I listen back to them, it's like, yeah. wow, we really sounded like we knew what we were talking about. <laughs> talking so there, about. So there People go. don't want to know how the sausage is made. Just enjoy it. Exactly. So I'll tell you what, we'll come back and we'll make another sausage in two weeks. Oh, my, my, my. <laughs> Until then, I'm Chris McBride and that's Derek Myers. And we're saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the world. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.